Among the presents that I received this Christmas was a wonderful book. I expect some of you have come across it. It's called Citizens of London, and it's by a woman called Lynn Olson, and it's subtitled Americans Who Stood with Britain in Its Darkest, Finest Hour. And Ms. Olson gives an account of the Second World War and the relationship between England and America, and she centers this account on three men, on Averill Harriman, who... Uh, oversaw the Lend-Lease program, so critical to England's survival, and then was ambassador to Russia and then ultimately to, to, uh, to Britain. And um, Edward Murrow, the journalist who was there in the birth of CBS and reported uh, what was going on during the Blitz particularly to America. And then the chap that I didn't know the most about, but in some ways the most compelling character in this story, is John Gilbert Wynant. And one was the British ambassador after, uh, the, the ambassador to Britain after Joseph Kennedy, and was there through the whole Second World War. And as the story goes, developed this extraordinary connection with the people of England to the point where he was revered and, and loved, and, and, they, and, and he, he kept finding his way through a sort of minefield of personal relationships, particularly. Uh, between American, as, as, as England just filled with American troops before D-Day, relationship between American troops and the, the host population, the declining relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill. And he, he found his way through, through all of these things. Miss Olson doesn't varnish the truth, um, nor underestimates the importance of America's entry into the war for its eventual outcome. And she deals with the personality conflicts and the affairs and so on. But through all of this, um, Wynant, who was a Republican governor of New Hampshire before the war at one point, possibly one of the most popular governors ever, and won the governorship over uh, the party machine of his own party, with whom he sometimes found himself at odds and often at great cost to himself. And then he, he was the first administrator of the social security system in the days when there was huge, vehement opposition to that system in this country, and you know he had an office, and people were underfunded, and all of that sort of thing. And then he became personally close to Churchill during the war, and played a pivotal role in sorting through some very tricky relationships. He, in the 42 or thereabouts, the most extraordinary thing happened. He was he was asked to intervene and help mediate uh, what was likely to be a strike by coal miners in the north of England, who were obviously critically important to the whole war effort. Uh, and, and in a famous speech, he said, the drive for manpower in war must become a drive for employment to make freedom from want a living reality. We must always remember that it is the things of the spirit that in the end prevail, that caring counts, that by daring to live dangerously, we are learning to live generously, and that by believing in the inherent goodness of man, we may meet the call of your great prime minister and stride forward into the unknown with growing confidence. And the, there was silence, and then the miners applauded, and they, they put off their strike and were part of the, the labor movement that really took over the reins of power after the Second World War. And time and again, Wynant reminded anyone who'd listened that war was not the goal for humanity, however necessary in order to resist tyranny. The point, whether dealing with 
conflicting policy decisions or personal relationships or Anglo-American relationships or whatever else. The point was not enmity, but greater justice and greater freedom for all people and, and how that must not be forgotten in the midst of this, of this war. Now, the reason he comes up this morning for me is that one of the things he had to confront over and over and over was, a, was that deliciously justifying sense of self-righteousness on the part of many with those who came in contact. People who believed they were right over against other people. The generals fighting about strategy, international leaders fighting about who was going to have the right sort of authorities and this, that, and the other, who had the right vision for, for Europe, who had the right idea for how the war should be fought and so on. And he was always uh, maneuvering through this extraordinary sort of depth of self-righteousness. It's something every one of us knows. How, how fun it can be when you're in a group of people who you know all agree with you to rag on the people who don't. You know, that, or or the, the wonderful sense of being aggrieved or hurt and knowing that you were, you were somehow a victim and you were right and you were righteously wounded and you expect attention. It's just wonderful fun, actually, if you think about it, which is, which is why we do it so much. Um, it's the righteousness of the world. It's the kind of righteousness that somehow gives us rights over against others, those of whom we otherwise disapprove. And we all know what it's like to, and how wonderful it is to be vindicated in the court of human opinion, confident of the outcome. Now, the resurrection into which we are baptized provides a different way of moving into right relationship or righteousness uh, as a new basis for human society that does not depend on scarcity and does not depend on having a common enemy and does not pit some people over against others. The righteousness of God is fundamentally different than the righteousness of the world. Peter. St. Peter was granted a vision of the unclean and the clean all mixed up together. And what we hear this morning is his speech after he's had this vision. And he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but that in every nation, anyone who fears him and does righteousness, does what is right, is acceptable to him. Jesus, at his baptism, when John is resisting baptizing, Jesus says, for it is proper in this way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he's echoing the prophet Isaiah who said, who proclaimed God saying, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness as he shares a vision for the justice of the nations. The righteousness is the righteousness, the righteousness of God is the righteousness that recognizes that my well-being, my salvation, my place in the world, my success, and even the quality of my relationships are bound up with yours that there is no salvation for me unless there is also salvation for you, and there is no salvation for you unless there is also salvation for me and every other creature that God has made. It is the righteousness of the world that put Jesus to death. It's the righteousness of those people who thought they were doing the right thing for society over against so much to the degree that they put Jesus to death. It is the righteousness of the resurrection the righteousness of the kingdom that is our own reasonable and holy hope for life. Now today, 
is, among other things, Anglican Communion Sunday. I know that's what you thought about when you got out of bed this morning. <laughs> it gets vigor, invigorating stuff, isn't it? Uh, this is the Anglican Communion banner. I mean, we celebrate and, uh, and uplift the Anglican Communion every Sunday. And there are some tricky relationships within the Anglican Communion. And whether I think about that, or whether I think about what this new Congress can mean for us, or even if I'm simply thinking about how we treat each other, and whether we're being transparent and personal and straightforward with each other, I know that what I want to see reflected in the quality of my own relationships and in yours and the ways we are together is the righteousness of God rather than the righteousness of the world. Now, we, have, we represent a wide swath of political affection and affiliation here. We have different preferences for the policies that are going to get us where we believe we need to be as a society. And yet what I look for is not that kind of right over against everything else. What I look for in myself and everyone else is a fundamental concern that those without power, regardless of the policies we believe will lead to a more just society, and policies have to be debated, warp and woof, uh, sorted out. I mean, I can't, I'm not really ready to think about what happened in, in Arizona this weekend, but it, it's right on the front of my mind when I think about this righteousness of the world. Whatever our, our preferences that we believe will lead to a more just society, what I want to hear is people who are, whether in church or state, who can convey what John Gilbert Wynant conveyed over and over. He would have called it connection with the common man, sense of purpose for so many of a better life for those who are weak, those who are unemployed, those who are marginalized in church and state, those who are swept around like flotsam and jetsam on the wind and waves of fate and fortune. I'm listening for that authentic voice, not one that uses those as political footballs. And when we hear it, we know it. And when we hear it, we're hearing something of the righteousness of God and not the righteousness of the world that is only about winning. Winning makes sense, and conviction makes sense, and, 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 and a sense of importance of what we're up to makes sense in a bigger picture. And what is that bigger picture? It's the world marked by the presence of God, the world marked by justice with peace and dignity for everyone, for me and you, for me and whoever my other is today. So I'm listening for those who are baptized into the righteousness of God, meaning that we relate to one another with generous hearts and with an attitude of genuine humility. And what that humility, I think, is, is the sense that however deep my conviction and however passionate my belief, that deep down I know that I just might be wrong. And when I can convey conviction with humility, then that is the mark of the righteousness of God. And that is the hope for the Anglican communion, for the state, for the church, for our marriages, for our relationships, for each other, and for this parish. Isaiah proclaimed the word of God. He said, I am the Lord. I have made you righteous. 
As always, let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.